0: Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for showing up again. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Some of you have asked. My, my fingers do, doing much better. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's on the last podcast. Um. Anyway, I, I appreciate the the well wishing, and um, yeah, so I'm 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 back at it. It this was a kind of a painful, slow process of recovering and I'm like true old man status where cold weather is seriously hurts my finger. I'm gonna be like that guy who can tell the weather um by <laughs> consulting some some missing body part. So anyway, um yeah you're gonna love today's podcast. I'm talking to Bree Stoner, good friend. Um Kind of who, who she is and what she's doing in the world and and bringing forth in the world will come out on the podcast. So, I'm I'm not going to give much of a bio. It kind of comes out naturally, but do check her stuff out. Um, I'm really grateful to her for her friendship and um and the fact that she's such an inspiring person um, in my life and and I'm and I'm glad yeah I'm glad she said yes to to coming on hints and guesses. So. Um, yeah, special thanks to my, uh, Patreon supporters. As always, you make this podcast happen each month, help me bring people on and produce it and make it and all the, all the good stuff. And I just feel deeply, deeply grateful for your support and, um, and ongoing sort of encouragement. So special thanks to my Patreon supporters. And I think, I don't want to. Um, I'll throw in two ads. One is I've got an Israel trip in March, and it looks like it's going to work. It's not impossible for you to still get on it. You might have to book your own flights to Israel, but now Israel is open. There are lots of protocols related to COVID, but it looks like they're not insurmountable. And uh, so I'm taking a group from Denver mainly, and a few other, uh, a few people from other places in the world are also joining. So. If that interests you and, and you have the capacity to do something like that in your life right now, you can contact me through my website, Uh, kentabson.com. uh There's not much information about that specific Israel trip because I really just am you know, put it out there in the same way that I ordinarily do, but that is happening. and um, and I'm, I'm working on a Lent descent class which I do every year. And um, my schedule is a little insane in March, which is the the, the season of Lent. But I'm, I'm just about ready to say here are the dates. Um, and if that interests you, a few of you have said, hey, I'm interested in your Lent Descent course. It's an online Zoom course where we talk about descent and um, allow ourselves to to." To sink into the to the womb of the earth is really the most ancient image associated with the time this time period in this season that leads up to 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 Easter. Um, anyway, if that interests you, the details will be on my website shortly, and uh, you can contact me that way. And uh, I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get right to the conversation. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Hey, Brie. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> hey, Kent.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's about time you invited me. I mean, I've been taking it personally, honestly.
0: <laughs> well, I've only had like four guests, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: Maybe five. Um, you know, I was thinking we've known each other for like more than 20 years.
1: That's wild.
0: It is kind of wild. Like, yeah. <laughs> you probably know more about like the inside scoop of my life than just about anybody.
1: So, <laughs> so does, that does that give me permission? Does that give me permission to use that against you on this podcast?
0: Well, it goes both ways, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I was, um, you know, we first met in the worship team days. Remember that the playing music together? Yeah. I first heard your voice on an answering machine. Maybe you're even too young to know what an answering machine is. Did you ever have an answering machine?
1: Yeah, Kent, I was alive when I <laughs> left you that message. So yes, I remember. <laughs> I remember what the answering machine it doesn't was. doesn't mean <laughs> you, were,
0: you were using a, a, a phone oh, yeah. that had one or something. I was
1: I was also conscious before yeah. computers. Right. So we have that in common.
0: Yes, we have that in common. It's a great gift, actually.
1: <laughs> I think so.
0: So I'm going to make a intro. But... Before this part of the podcast, but' it's, it's a bit hard to to describe what you do, what you're up to, and, and who you are. I mean, and maybe we have that in common. Sometimes I hear my kids complaining they don't know what to tell people about me. Yeah, <laughs> or you, or Mandy. What do your parents do? Um, but I mean, you make music, you paint. You have a podcast. You write. You're a teacher. What I mean, is there something else that I'm I'm missing in in those kinds of roles, if that's the right word for it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess we could add mother, lover, human to that mix. But yeah, it's tough. It's tough to know how to describe what it is that we do, Kent, because because we're exploring multivocality and i think so many people are comfortable and have been trained to be comfortable with the single identifier of yeah. one job one career so i think that the term i'm most comfortable with or the one that i think kind of encapsulates all of them is artist mm. or creative because it allows room for multivocality of like different mediums and expressions but if I had to pick one, that's the one that I feel like gives me the most space and the most freedom and doesn't pigeonhole me, you know, into being, you know, just one thing over the others. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, I, I resonate with that. I When I was like 10, I said to myself, I'm going to be an artist. And I don't really have any idea what I meant. It's not like it was I uh, I didn't know you, any artists. You uh, didn't,
1: you weren't talking about Eddie Vedder at that moment. <laughs>
0: I was too young. I was too oh, young okay, to meet, okay. to meet my muse, Eddie Vedder. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I said it kind of innocently and I mean, I did go to the woods and draw things, but, um, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't mean it as a career. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know it was a career and it's not a career really. Yeah. I connect with that. So it's almost, I, and vocality is, a, is an interesting way of putting it because sometimes I'm, I'm asking without asking. Um, what, if my soul, if that's the right word for it is shaped in a certain way, how does it want to come forth or what Avenue or what voice or what, um, channel does it want to take? What course does it want to take to, to find its way into the world? And that's, um, tricky and a little scary and, and also like enlivening sort of at the same time. Right. Um, yeah. So, I wanted to ask you about the early, breathe the early years. It sounds like an album. <laughs> um, that that's how we should think about your life. It's a series of albums. And <laughs> the first um,
1: album was total shit. But yeah, let's go there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's talk about the early years. Yeah, where were you born?
1: So I was born in Crown Point, Indiana. This is very this is a very glamorous stage mm. of my life. The the very beginning. But it was about eight months after I was born that my family and I moved to Spain. So we first lived in Saragossa, Spain for five years. And then we moved to Madrid where I spent the rest of my childhood, my childhood. But my parents were, they were missionaries. So obviously they were in the business of saving the Catholics from hell, Mm. Um, a a job that we were very successful at. Mm. So you know, all of Spain is now redeemed because of, because <laughs> that's of also the yeah. Pope's
0: job. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we're edged him out. Yeah. yeah, no, we edged them out <laughs> yeah. competition, but yeah, no, they were part of a conservative Baptist mission, hmm. but even though the mission itself was very conservative, they were kind of the rule breakers. They kind of came in with progressive ideas, like, My dad wanted to really invest in the community and uh, my parents insisted on my brother and I going to Spanish public school and really immersion in the culture itself. And my dad and my mom started a youth center. There was a huge drug problem in, in the 80s. And so they wanted to start a youth center to help kids be off the streets. And then my dad also was a part of doing um, basketball tournaments and sports and just activities Mm -hmm. and organizing community activities. So he worked with the Spanish government. So, you know, even though the theology, the teaching, the worldview that I was being handed was pretty narrow and pretty Mm -hmm. constricted uh, they themselves were already living something more expansive, even if they didn't even realize it, what they handed my brother and I, was something far more inclusive mm. and uh oriented toward just service and support and community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that seems true. I mean, when I met your parents 20 years ago, whenever, I mean, they had that kind of vibe. Um, before a word like inclusion was popular <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and right. came to mean all kinds of other things, they were right. very inclusive people, very loving people and and present, you know. Um, Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the way you're telling the story is quite gracious and I'm not, I don't want you to, I don't want to talk you into a a darker version, but did, did it take you a while to look at your conservative past and the constrictions of it, um, with such sort of gratitude? I mean, how did you get there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, we become aware of dissonance pretty early on. I mean, keeping with the theme of vocality or music, uh, it's easy for me to draw on musical metaphors, but we become aware of certain rubs, harmonic tensions between what we're being taught and the inner language of the heart or maybe what our soul's kind of into it. And I remember really early on, I think I was maybe five, the first time that I stormed into my dad's office and, you know, full of chutzpah and intensity, as you might well guess I had uh, at age five, and just looked at him and said, How come I can't be a preacher or a pastor? Hmm. And I remember him kind of like hemming and hawing and trying to work his way into describing according to the very, you know, strict. Uh, confines of the religious worldview that we were in, women couldn't be pastors, they they couldn't be teachers. And so he was trying to find his way into it. I think he quoted Paul or something. And I remember, I remember I nodded and I was like, okay. And I remember I turned around and walked away, but inside it was the first moment of rebellion Mm. that I can remember because I was like, nope, (laughs) I just, Mm. it was the, I just, something in me pushed against it and there were other moments as well moments when I would be enraptured by some aspect of the beauty of Spanish culture or Catholicism I remember there was a a processional that would take place that would kind of wind its way through the town it was one of the many you know saint days whatever they parading around the, the Virgin Mary and all the women have these beautiful lace you know shawls and um, coverings on their head and there's this you know raggedy little band that's playing it's like kind of like godfather like just like Mm you know like it's like just like really just out of tune and but there was something about the pageantry the ritual the artistry the beauty of the lace the candles the the statue the music and i would just sit there looking out of my window and just i just would love it i just loved i loved everything it stood for and i remember my mom you know kind of walking up to me and you know standing behind me in one of those times when i was looking out the window and she said something like oh, it's just so sad you know it's so sad and I, what she meant by that was like oh you know, they're worshiping the wrong thing. And I mean, of course, now she's probably going to be pissed that I'm talking about this, right? Because she doesn't believe the same things anymore. <laughs> but at the time, it was another moment of inner rebellion. So, so there was this rub that was taking place in that early map, in the, that early experience of my childhood. And the other thing that was happening during that time is my parents, whether they knew it or not, uh, were passionate about art. Mm. And so they prioritized the arts. They took us to lots of museums and to lots of studios of the great impressionists and um, found a way to afford me being in ballet and, uh, you know, managed to pay somehow an art teacher to teach us how to paint. And mm. um, they also really emphasized literature. So we grew up reading a lot. So whether they realized it or not, they handed my brother and I a trap door into a more expansive worldview into something that was more inclusive. So yeah, to answer your question, it's like a long way to answer it. I think that the ability to hold the tension of those rubs had been growing in me for a long time, but I don't think it was until, you know, Later on in my teenage years, that I could look back on it and be like, "Oh, it's okay. It's okay that that was the worldview that I was given, and it's okay that it was out of tune with what I wasn't, you know, intuiting. It's okay that, you know, we were basically trying to save the Catholics from hell." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the tolerance, the ability to hold that kind of paradox, it is. Uh, it's it's like learning how to hear harmony. It's like two notes can exist at the same time and they don't have to flatten each other. It's okay.
0: Yeah. 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 Speaking of harmony. Um, is it true that Mandy um, kind of, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's but hard yeah, to Mandy say
0: taught you how to taught you harmony. Cause it's something that you hear, but what would you say about that?
1: No, Mandy did yeah. <laughs> totally. I remember, you know, and this is shortly after we met in the the Mars Hill days and you know, being part of the worship team. I totally remember, by the way, the message that I left you Mm because if for no other reason, because you and Mandy made fun of me for so long (laughs) afterwards, it's worth it. Oh, I think I was, was I 15 or 16? Yeah. yeah, And I left a message. I was like, um, hi, my name is Bree Stoner and I heard that you're auditioning singers for the worship band. So (laughs) that's about it. That's it. That was it. it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I knew how to sing or I I was learning how to sing. I was learning how to become comfortable with my own voice. Um, You know, I could play guitar, but I couldn't harmonize. And Mm. so I remember Mandy during our uh, worship team's practices, she would stand behind me Mm. and she would sing the harmonies. And then after a while, it was like my ears learned how to hear the notes that weren't there or hear the notes that could be there.
0: Yeah, Um, totally. So awesome. Yeah. She's so good, so, harmony. Awesome. Oh.
1: so good.
0: at So good. Yeah. And thanks for being on the worship team. I mean, I was like, um, compared to everyone else, I was like just a punk rocker and everyone <laughs> else had some musical talent. So you and Mandy and others made it, made it palatable. Um, yes. okay. So, I mean, do you feel more Spanish or more American or somewhere in between or what, like, The geography of your own soul, does it land somewhere?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think, you know, speaking of harmony, you know, we came back to the States when I was 12, which is such a tender time to go Mm -hmm. through a transition, let alone a massive cultural shock transition. We moved back to Indiana for a few years while my dad finished up his doctorate. And so, yeah, it was like going from Madrid to Valparaiso, Indiana, I can't imagine what would go wrong in that scenario <laughs> or or why that would be difficult. Um, yeah, so the question of where, of home and kind of identifying with a particular landscape in terms of belonging, it's, I think it is, it has been a journey of learning how to hold both things at one time, both, both landscapes is true. Um, for a long time, I think it was natural for me to feel more Spanish than American because that was my childhood. Spanish was my first language and, you know, English kind of came in a Spanglish mess later. Um, But all of my formative years were in a completely different culture. And when we came to the States, I felt like I had to just tuck that away and hide it because, because I don't, I don't have an accent. Most people just assume that I grew up in the States like everybody else. And so, so I learned how to tuck that away and hide it and almost like suppress it. Uh, and I don't think it was until, you know, my twenties and thirties that I really began feeling more comfortable identifying as both. And, Hmm. you know, there's a phenomenon called third culture kids where, yeah. Children of missionaries or, um, the military wind up having this experience of feeling like they don't belong in either country, uh, neither the one that they were born in or the one that they grew up in, but they also belong in both. And so there's like a third belonging that gets developed. That is kind of both. And
0: yeah. Yeah. There's this, like, I'm not going to get it right. There's this, there's this quotation like Tertullian or something like that early Christian world. And it's like, he's speaking of the Christians and it's like, they're, um, they're at, they're not at home. I'm going to paraphrase. It's like, they're not at home anywhere and everywhere is their home and, yeah. and every land is their fatherland. And that's, that's a, that's like a weird kind of displacement, a sort of a spiritual, but also like physical and geographical sort of displacement. And it, maybe it does have a kind of third, um, sort of belonging that's associated with it. It's funny you mentioned that because when I when I w- lived in Israel, I was around a lot of people like this mm-hmm. and a lot of immigrants, you know, uh, one of my, my best friends is born in Sweden. So that's his native language. And But then he moved to Israel when he was about your age. And, you know, and, and when you moved to Israel, you're like in these you're just fully immersed in Hebrew, And so he speaks Hebrew and then, and, but his dad is American and he speaks English. And, but if you meet him, you wouldn't know you'd be, you'd think he was an American, but he's got this, the same thing that I think you're, you're trying to describe, which is kind of a certain amount of suffering is comes with that. And also, you know, it's kind of beautiful at the same time. So, yeah,
1: it's kind of like, if you think about it, it's like, you know, you play one note. And then you play the other note and you kind of bouncing back and forth between them until you discover they can both kind of happen at the same time. Yeah. Uh, that kind of complexity. It takes a while to find that. To
0: and find we're that like, place. we're in a one note culture. I mean, everything oh, yeah. is like that. You got to oh, yeah. know your Enneagram number and your Myers Briggs oh, yeah. and you got to identify somewhere on something as some letter or number or abstraction or category or ideology. I mean, it's just like a, it's a cultural disease right now.
1: Or even Um, just like what you were saying at the beginning, Kent, about like, what do you say you do exactly? And it's because, because, you know, we're obsessed with certainty mm -hmm. or the idea of of certainty being possible as though certainty provides us with a sense of security. But, you know, and as we recognize how much we live in an evolving, shifting, fluid reality, permeable reality, you know, those categories don't work, yeah. but it makes sense why we like them. Cause it makes us think for a second that it does.
0: Well, the ego likes them. Yeah. It's like tasty to the ego. Yeah. Um, okay. Quick, quick, quick advertising break. What does this have to do with your new podcast and what's it called? <laughs>
1: I was like, I was like, oh, you're like sponsored by no, like no, madcap no. coffee or something. Like what no. are we? I was so excited to hear what this is going to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So my, my podcast is called unknowing. And I think for all the reasons we've already circled around that um, there was something in me that was drawn to the gate of unknowing as being necessary for creativity, for spiritual growth, for love, for hope, for all of the most beautiful things in this life. It's like we have to walk through the gate of letting go of what it is that we think we know to make room for what is infinitely possible the infinite yet or the infinite could be and that that's a trust fall in every way and I think I experienced it over the years as an artist Hmm. and then I also experienced it in many ways in my own growth and spiritual transformation over the years and experienced it in love and so it just felt pretty key to to kind of shift it from a problem not knowing you know Hmm. to see it as a gift like oh that's a good thing you're in an, an unknowing moment. That means you're about to give birth to something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so what kind of terrain are you trying to explore it just in the podcast? Like who are you talking to? Why are you talking to them? What, what are the, what questions are surfacing aside from the obvious ones that you just, you just mentioned, yeah. which is the kind of the, the essence of the dance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, before being on Unknowing, I was, I was a part of a podcast called Another Name for Everything with uh, Father Richard Rohr. He's an author, a Catholic author, Franciscan author. And a lot of people have found his work helpful and meaningful because he talks so much about paradox yeah. and, you know. Like me, story.
0: I found it helpful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Me too. Um, but even while I was on that podcast, I had the experience of, of really wanting to um, undress what can often be portrayed in a very precious way, you know, the contemplative or mystical world, whether it's in Christianity or other traditions can sometimes just feel Like, uh, like you have to be wearing like hemp and like speaking in a very like soft voice. have a sheet
0: over your head. Yeah, Yeah.
1: like just, it's like, it's like a little, you know, too fucking precious. Like, you know, it's just, it's a little too, and it's a little too aloof and, and, you know, a little, it can sometimes be too aloof. It can sometimes be so wrapped up in these blueprints, these beautiful esoteric blueprints that the mystics have written. And people don't realize that, what we're doing when we do that is we're pedestalizing the teacher we're pedestalizing these mystics we're pretending Mm. as if they weren't humans as if they weren't messy and confused and frustrated just as we are and so i knew pretty early on that i wanted this podcast to not be precious Mm. that i wanted to have conversations about spirituality that um you know removed everything that was sort of uh keeping it in the realm of religiosity Mm. and Uh, Which means what?
0: Which means what to you? Hmm. Religiosity means?
1: I think uh, that's a great question. I think religiosity is another landscape of belonging and it's Hmm. use, you know, being a part of a religious, you know, let's call it country. It's like you, you learn a lot, you learn a lot from the culture of that country, but ultimately I find that it's too easy to camp out in that world and forget about the world we're in, the one that's fleshy and confusing and um, is in danger, you know, that the one that's burning, the one that needs our care and our attention. Mm-hmm. And so, after you know, going to so many retreat centers where it's like just you know, the most bucolic settings and just the sweetest, softest voices and just the most <laughs> meaningful <laughs> meditation sessions, you know, it's like, I want to talk about how you find God, you know, in sex, how do you find God in the midst of unraveling one career as you have the courage of stepping into another? Um, yeah. So for me, I have found the, the vernacular of creativity is so useful in that regard, because you want to talk about ideas like love, compassion, and, you know, love, and -hmm. everybody talks about love. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Are you just talking about being nice? Are you just talking about being kind? But for me, love is creativity, because if your love doesn't manifest something new in the world, something that serves the whole in some shape or form, Mm -hmm. then it's not love. You know, if your love doesn't show up and animating your courage to step out of your comfort zone and to create and to, uh, trust fall into the, what could be, then it's not love. It's just comfort and safety, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 That's like Eros, you know, it's like, it has it's it's this living vitality, this right. underground living vitality that erupts and, yeah. and seems to be Aimed in a certain direction. I mean, not aimed like um, in a in a in a highly specific one, but toward toward more toward toward moreness, the moreness.
1: So that end, I think, I really wanted to. Uh, have conversations with artists first and foremost and to help people see themselves as artists you know a lot of people have this idea that if you're not making music or painting that you're not an artist but if you're living if you're alive you are creating something with every breath with every choice with every action and so I'm trying to um help people remember or become membered to their own artistry to see themselves as, as creative. So I mm-hmm. love talking to artists. And then of course there are, you know, spiritual teachers that come on or authors, um, but also, you know, social change agents and like mischief makers, people who yeah. are, who are courageously falling into the more that you were just speaking. of. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, this, maybe you don't, but, um, you know, the muses. And so in Greek mythology, you have the nine muses, some of them poetry, you know, dance, art, um, and all, all nine. But what's amazing is that, um, they're birthed from the mother of memory there that, that to be creative, at least I'm, as I understand through Greek mythology and as I even experience this is to remember it's to remember something it's to remember. And, um, and to have something come through, some, something be born. And, you know, I bristle a little bit if I'm just honest when I, hear, when I hear you say everyone is an artist because not because I don't believe you, I do. Like we have that capacity to be taken by, by the muse. Everyone does, everyone can remember in the way that you're saying. And, and it is an ultimate calling to live your life as an artist in the world. I only bristle because Americans here career. It's like my, yeah. my buddy the other day posted this thing and is like first spiritual experience. And it was like this person looking up at this butterfly and their question was, is this a career? You know? So <laughs> it's like, that's the, well, I
1: think I remember Can't I, I, I think I was 17 or 18. I forget, but there was one time where I remember we were, there was some like worship team event or something. I I think it had something to do with Scott Baker. I remember a conversation in which you said to me, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, you know, that you said to me, don't become a musician because it's, you think it can be a career. Like this is not a career. Become a musician because it makes you into a certain kind of person, Mm -hmm. a person who is sensitive, who pays attention, who's tuned in to the more subtle realm, you know? And I, that stayed with me, you know, but you're right. We have a way in, in our, you know, Western culture, especially here in the States of yeah, wanting to. Create an identity out of anything, but especially career wise, it's like, you know, what do you do? The fact that that's our first question
0: mm-hmm.
1: is just so weird. <laughs>
0: yeah. And there's like almost no way to get out of it, you know, even if I'm an asshole and I say yeah. something like, I just, I just am, you know, I yeah. just sound like an idiot to myself. You know? <laughs> right. So.
1: right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you have to accept that one. But I do think, you know, understanding ourselves as artists, as creatives. Is is, could potentially offer an avenue in which you can see the possibility of your own life. Mm. And it it creates a framework in which you are not passive. You're not waiting for things to happen to you. You're not passive even in your relationship to the divine if you believe in a monotheistic God. You're You're not sitting back and being like, oh, God is inviting me to do this or I'm doing that. It's like, no, God fucking wants you to create. Like Mm. if if that's the energy of the divine, which it is, it seems to be. I mean, what do I know? But if if so much of human intuition around whatever we can call the mystery of what is more than human seems to orient around making, you know, all the creation stories. Yeah. It's like all of the archetypes, you know, Mm -hmm. all of the myths, then why do we not live with that same kind of agency why do we not see ourselves as capable of manifesting what is next and i you know it's like i take issue with this because i think in a lot of my experience even in studying theology or even in mysticism it's like we get so kind of precious or caught up in the voices of of those who came before us and Mm. There is a natural reverence that I think we ought to have toward all great arts, whether it's the prophetic kind or the, you know, the um, artistic kind and the appreciation of, of what is possible when somebody is fully alive or really tuned into origin or to source, but it's like when are we going to stop worshiping yeah. those who have come before us, whether yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. they were
1: the prophets or, you know, like when are we going to wake up and realize like you have everything that they had?
0: Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. What not, are you to blame, do? not to blame Thomas Aquinas for everything, but I think, <laughs> I Lex, think we, <laughs> I think we misunderstand the imitatu Christi or the imitation of Christ, however you say it in yeah. Latin. Cause we, t- we, t- we take it to mean sort of like what, what was going on in the nineties, like what would Jesus do kind of thing? And, Um, instead of, I mean, if we were to do what Jesus did, which is, which would be something like this, develop a wildly, not even develop, but submit to a wildly unique experience of the divine that is personal and live courageously in the world as an artist. And only we can do that. Like Jesus can't do it for us. And, 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 and in some ways the ancient voices are whispering the same thing in our ear. If we, if we, I just thought about Thomas Merton, who I was like, I am still in love with and has helped shape my own way of seeing the world. But he has this one great line. He's like, what I wear is pants and how I pray is breathe, you know? And it's Hmm. like, well, I need to do it like Thomas Merton and what Move to Kentucky. No, I mean, I need to find my own pants and learn how to breathe, you know, in, in my own way. So
1: there's an audacity to that though, Kent, that's like, this is this is why I think courage is so critical and talking about courage and talking about unknowing as having courage because because we're so stuck by the imitation of what others have done. We don't realize that we have to unknow that in order yeah. to know what we ourselves can do. And if, mm-hmm. you know, to your point about imitating Christ, it's like if, if people aren't getting in your face and saying, who the hell do you think you are, then you're not doing it right. (laughs) You're not really imitating Christ. Like that should be like a foundational question. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Is
1: somebody getting pissed off about the audacity and the courage of your creativity? Mm. That's a good sign.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what happened to Jesus, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I want to try to fill in the gap between your most recent uh, vocalizations and harmonizing in the world and, and the early years. So what happened after, um, after high school? I mean, did you go to college? What happened? Where, what, what, you know, did you take that? <laughs> did you take the right path? I mean, if you yeah, could just yeah. tell us the right path, we could, we could be just like, Can you I'll do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I. I have been in the process of getting good and lost and loving it. So I think the beginning of the second stage of my life right after high school was when I started to embrace being lost. Um, I remember talking to you and Mandy, you know, there had been a teaching that Rob Bell had done at this, at the church that we were part of. And uh, he had talked about prophets and he said something along the lines of, the reason there aren't more prophets in this world is because we're too busy planning out our lives perfectly. There's no room for God. There's no room for mystery because we're like, okay, well, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to meet the right person. I'm going to get my master's degree. Then we're going to get married. I'm going to have two kids and a dog. And then we're going to have a house that we're going to save for retirement. Then like, maybe when we retire, like maybe then I'll have space to like embrace the adventure of the unknown or yeah. also known as God's realm so I remember hearing that teaching and I think I was, I was a senior at 16, so I must've been 16. So like, I just remember like feeling like a lightning bolt had gone through me and all of my plans and like where I was headed to go to school and what I was going to study in college, like it just became meaningless Mm -hmm. because I couldn't shake the question of what if, what if I gave god that much rain over my life like what if what if i embraced unknowing that much to like literally walk away from the path that had been set before me as like a societal norm like <laughs> and i told my parents about it they were pretty supportive which is really surprising i mean there was like a little bit of you know concern and at the time i think we set it up as like oh it's just going to be a year um and I remember, later. yeah. Right. I remember you and Mandy being like really concerned. You guys were like, yeah. no, you're like college is where you find yourself. You have to go to college. So instead, we're, it's of,
0: funny. We're telling you to conform, be a conformist, yeah. go to college, <laughs> take unnecessary classes, go, go $80,000 in debt. Exactly. <laughs> and trust me. It's really worth it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I think what you perceived and what many of my um, high school teachers perceived and my parents and others was, you know, I had a very curious mind and loved, you know, academia. I loved learning. I was quite good at it. I was in, um, you know, the, the upper percentage of my class. And so, mm-hmm. but there was, there was an attachment there too. Like I liked feeling smart. I liked everybody knowing I was smart. And so there was, you know, there was an awareness even at 16 that like I was giving something up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting now, and I'm sure we'll get to this eventually, but I've been studying the story of Inanna, uh, the goddess Inanna, and as she descends into the underworld, she has to go through seven gates, and at each gate, there's an exchange, where you know the judge of each gate asks her to give something up. Yeah. And so, like what? You know, oh, her crown was the okay. first one. Yes. Lapis earrings and a necklace mm. was another one, which is kind of interesting—the ears and the throat. Mm. Um, uh, she had to give up her measuring rod and rope. Uh, that was a symbol of royalty, which I find fascinating, her golden ring and eventually her vestments. So she was completely naked by Mm -hmm. the time she got in. Mm -hmm. So I would say that was a gate, you know, I gave up that kind of the certainty of an academic path and of, you know, social, uh, like to be a, you know, card carrying, like (laughs) college graduate. Um, Mm -hmm. And instead I started working at Mars Hill, um, working part-time for the youth ministry, but also for music and working with you and Chad. And I voraciously devoured any and all books that you handed my way and Rob handed my way. And I think I begged each of you to just like, I think in my terror that I was missing out on like core (laughs) foundational education, I made you each give me like some books and things. And I think in, in hindsight, I was probably exposed to a better education just in that first year than most freshmen are.
0: <laughs> probably. I was probably just mas- mainly recommending Heschel and Jewish yeah. stuff at the time. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was. It was a lot of Heschel, but yeah. it was also poetry. And Chad <laughs> gave me lots of books on philosophy. And then mm. of course, I was digging into theology as well. So, So those early years were You know the the formation that was taking place was you know like a philosophical like shift worldview. A lot of the same things that happened for people during college was happening for me. There was a a tremendous amount of growth and opening, a blooming. And uh, I was also you know uh, recording music and kind of discovering my capacity as an artist and songwriter. And uh, eventually, I think it was three years after that. And this is very typical, you get to a certain place where that particular container doesn't fit and you hit another set of inner frustration and sort of dissonance with the world that you're in. So I became uncomfortable in that, even in what seemed like the most inclusive and cool (laughs) spiritual container that was at that time. So that kind of broke out. I broke out of that. It was like an egg that shattered and um, continued my musical career uh, after that, eventually moved to Los Angeles, lived in LA for about a year before moving back to Michigan. And um, my musical career has always been unfolding. And I, I, yeah, I say, I probably shouldn't say the word career after we just like, you know, we'll give set. you a
0: pass. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, yeah, it's like, it's, it's not really a career, but it's like my musical, how should we say this? My musical growth, I guess, my musical capacity um, abilities had, had been unfolding all along. So from being a songwriter to performing in LA, um, being a part of a community out there where we were playing shows four to five nights out of the week. And that really was just incredibly formational, you know, the skill set that came out of that time. Um, But then as I got married and sort of started turning toward wanting to create um, a family with, with my then husband, music was something that I did on the side. And I became a vocalist and a producer and did a lot of instrumental music, but also music for TV and film as a singer, as an artist, um, so yeah, I don't know if that covers the ground of like the middle territory, but you know,
0: mm-hmm. well, it, I, I like what you said. Actually, it reminded me of something uh, <clears throat> that I got from James Hollis, the Jungian. He said, it's something like this, that yesterday's insight is now today's block. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this, something, this I'm paraphrasing a little bit, um, at 81 years old, you know, And I just think there's something profound in that. Okay. Yeah. Marcel was like this kind of really interesting place. And then all of a sudden it was a block and then same with LA. I mean, what a, what a, um, a kind of initiation into, into songwriting into being a musician and to living in that crazy insane place. Um, and then it was a block, you
1: know, it was, I remember when I left LA, I was just so tired and I, I, I felt like I was Wendy lady surrounded by lost boys. You know, I was like mm. 24 at the time, but I, all of my friends were 35 and 40 year old men who were literally like <laughs> acting Peter like Paz. children. Yeah. yeah, they were <laughs> yeah. they were the lost boys. So I felt wow. like, you know, I was like, where are the fucking accountants in the mm. city? Like who has to get up at eight? Like, does anybody have like any kind of like rhythm of life? And uh, oops, I think I was really hungry for seasonality. I was hungry for um, yeah, something, something a li- like a different kind of container. Um, mm. so, you know, naturally I decided to get married.
0: <laughs> yeah. As you would. Yeah. That there's a container. My life is right. out of control. I know marriage,
1: <laughs> but yeah, it does was, actually
0: function like that. It's it like, does. okay, you settle down now. And, uh, here, yeah. here are the rules, roughly speaking.
1: Right. Well, and, and- in hindsight i think i had broken such a major social rule social norm uh that you know by not going to college that there was there was a sense of like yeah yeah like like i i better at least get this one right you know i better Mm. do what's expected of me in in this regard and what
0: kind of voice is that i mean how would you say how would you say that now um
1: Yeah, I think it's part of that early map that we're handed, Mm. you know, this is one of the things I talk about on my podcast is with every guest, I say, well, what was the map that you were handed growing up? Because Mm. the the map we're handed in many ways gives us a certain sense of these landmarks of whether or not we're living the good life. Yeah, yeah. But but really, it's not the good life. It's the should life. And that's not the fucking good life. So Mm. I think I was following the voices of the map that said, this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. and yeah there was a lot of good girl training that I had received that I was still pretty unconscious of at that time that were driving the agenda of you must get married you must have kids you better fulfill your value as a woman because if you don't do those things like what are you
0: <laughs> yeah seriously and and it's interesting um that in when I was describing um you know some of the the voices in your life at the beginning, you said, and I'm also a mother I was like, Oh, interesting. wonder why I left that off. It was a little uh, curious question I had. So, well, let's talk about it now. So what about motherhood? And, and maybe I want to ask it this way. What, what part of motherhood was like another initiation, um, wow. and an initiation into what, and, um, what would you say? What would you say about that?
1: Wow. Yeah. I think becoming a mother has been the holiest passage uh, precisely because if, you know, describing Inanna's descent, it's like motherhood is so holy because it asks for everything Hmm. from you. Um, Yeah. I remember being pregnant with Soren, my firstborn, just sort of like, the initial terror and wonder in equal parts of being out of control already being Mm -hmm. pregnant. It's like, this was my body. Now this is not my body. Like I thought I had a sense of what I wanted to eat, but apparently I'm being hijacked by the alien inside me and I have to eat like, you know, peanut butter, like a ravenous beast. So (laughs) early on uh, as, as women, those of us who become biological mothers have have an initiation into being out of control, into your life is no longer about your wants. Uh, It is about somebody else's needs for survival. And it's quite primal. And uh, I really loved it, especially at the beginning, even though it was so wildly like a different country where all the rules like went out the window in the sense that it it is so primal what takes over the instinct to protect the instinct to nurture but early on with with Soren I was just very enraptured by the rhythm of life of life giving of just being in this cycle with my firstborn Um, and then I think It was probably when Rowan came along, my second born, that was like, oh, now we're really now we're really fucked because it's like the loss of control becomes so real and just like being completely overwhelmed. And there's nothing quite like having a toddler and a newborn at the same time and also being a creative who's like particularly sensitive to sound (laughs) like (laughs) like that really sucked. (laughs) And I'd never been needed that much Mm. before, ever, Mm. ever. And I've learned, you know, since and just like learned about things like attachment styles and discovered that, you know, my early training in attachment was like, I, pr- I prefer being my own island. Like I prefer the avoidant reality of like not being needed. So, yeah, it was a holy baptism. Um, but also full of wonder and f- full of magic and a slowing down of presence, you know, for all the meditation that I've been a part of, learned to do practice, you know, those moments of, of breastfeeding my babies, of being like fully present in my body. Like I have memories of staring down at Rowan's face and literally being able to see the tiny little translucent hairs off his skin and just being completely awestruck by how beautiful he was, is by the, the wonder of life, yeah, it's, it's a presencing that has stayed with me, you know, it's a way of seeing magic, of perceiving magic um, that only comes through that gateway of attention, but my kids continue to be a portal of presence and, and wonder and awe all the time just sometimes just like little things like the sound of one of my kids laughter it's like i swear to you like if <laughs> if i had to, to describe it in a way that could like poetically capture how it feels in my body i would say it's like like all of the angels in heaven stopped what they're doing just so they could listen to that sound you know it's like it's yeah. that beautiful mm-hmm
0: yeah I, yeah, I'm really moved by what you're saying here. It just makes me tear up. It's like, God, like just <clears throat> life itself, just surrendering to life as it is that our humanness, our innate, primal, instinctual, terrible and wonderful humanness, is all the initiation we need, you know, I mean Oh yeah. um. And there's something very unique and and beautiful in the way you're describing the journey of of being a mother that you know is is out of reach for me you know it's like no wonder no wonder ancient cultures they focus so much attention on masculine initiation rites because we don't have that we don't have mm-hmm. our life is not taken from us in, in that in the same way mm-hmm. um unless we're forced to to go off to battle you know I mean that's the you know, there's that. No, it, but,
1: it is. And yeah. I want to say something about the beauty of it, which is that it's terrible mm. and terrible in like the true definition of like the English word that it's like, it's, it is a great thing. Yeah, it is a great all, all, costly yeah. thing and it's not mm. easy. And mm. it, you know, it only requires everything, you know, <laughs> every part of you, but even, even now that my you know my marriage has changed shape and the reality of how i parent has changed there's a great cost in having to go without them you know in, in the co-parenting arrangement that i have with my ex-husband it's there's a that is also a gate because even now i'm practicing i'm practicing the same things that i practice you know the first time you see your kid hurt you know, or the, you know, listening to your child cry when they're learning how to put themselves to sleep, it's the gate of letting go. And there's something about that great presence that life initiates us into through life itself that somehow seems to teach us that like, without the awareness of how transient and fragile And how not ours any of this is, we can't appreciate the beauty of it either. So they go together, like this awareness that they're mine and they're not mine at all. And it's that's that edge of, you know, the longing is the love, the pain is the love, the heartbreak is the love. That's a practice and a another gate that I feel like my kids have initiated me into.
0: Yeah, I definitely know that feeling of this is my kid and not my kid it's yeah. it's heartbreaking it's like um and it's heartbreaking in in that kind of exquisite um lovely and terrible to use your word way you know it's yeah um you know i i kind of want to ask you a little bit about the en- end of your marriage not like in the we could have like let's talk about our exes <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Play some Taylor Swift in the background or something. Um, That's not what I mean. Um, And why do I want to ask you about that? Well, because you said it's a passage and it's like the myth and, and something else is taken some other adornment is taken. And, and I just, when I look out at the landscape, just of my friends, my close friends, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, the ending of long-term relationships is, is now the new norm. And um, there's all kinds of technical, uh, advice and um, how to's and, and we know how to do it. We know how to end. A, we know how to end a marriage, technically speaking, but the mm-hmm. spiritual terrain that opens up is pretty unfamiliar to people. And maybe it's because we're not used to spiritual training, period. That could be the case. But mm-hmm. maybe, I mean, what would you say about that? What kind of adornment was taking off, take, taken off in this gate? And what what was the terrain like? Mm-hmm. If you want to say, I don't want to. Yeah,
1: yeah. That. I think, uh, yeah, it might, be, it might be fair to say that, that this would be like one of the latter gates, you know, to compare it to Inanna's descent you know, the being stripped away of everything that you think makes you, you to, to be laid bare, to feel completely naked. Um, and that's such a visceral image, isn't it? As human beings, like it's just a visceral image to be like, to be that vulnerable. Uh, but the story of my divorce, you know, is wrapped up with an experience of, of trauma. You know, I, I, uh, through a series of events experienced, you know, an assault in which violence came crashing into my life. Um, the experience of losing control, uh, forcefully of being, of having my own will and volition being taken from me. That was a profound rift, like a lightning bolt that just tore through my sky. And, Mm -hmm through the sky of of the marriage that I was in. But there had been many other issues that had been unfolding over time. I think, as many people have and did, I got married so young. And really, as we discussed, like listening to the should voices and, you know, loved my uh, then husband very much uh, to the best of my ability, to the best that I knew how. But I didn't even know who I was. I had no sense of who I really was or what I really needed, or you know, things like energy and compatibility and um where I would like to go. And, you know, I've heard somebody say, I don't know if it's Dr. Solomon, but says like, you know, everybody goes through different stages or yeah, everybody goes through several marriages. Mm. If you're lucky, it's to the same person.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's you true. know, yeah. it is.
1: And so sometimes things can work and sometimes they don't, right around the time that I you know, in in both processing my own trauma, I had kind of it was like the straw that broke the camel's back, where I just realized I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't continue to be in the marriage that I was in, given everything that was going on in my life. Mm. I remember right around that time there was a tree in my in the backyard of the house that I shared with my ex-husband that that just like fell, just mm. like keeled over. I mean, this was like right in the middle of all the stuff happening, mm. just like toppled. Like it wasn't windy. It wasn't like it, yeah. <laughs> it just like died.
0: That's right. Yeah. And
1: I remember yeah. looking at the inside of the tree mm. and half of it had been rotted mm. and was rotting out and the other half was alive. Mm. And that is how life goes sometimes is like, you, you know, sometimes the tree topples and it topples this way instead of that way. And things can be half alive and half living for a long time until one day they are just done. Um, and I think that was a decision I had to face in myself. And one of the aspects of that gate, the gate of divorce, was in breaking the should map, you know. I felt like I was failing everybody by yeah, yeah. by getting divorced. And I was so sure that my parents and my friends were just gonna be so devastated and disappointed. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with my dad and my mom. And I just kind of said, look, this is. I have to do this. It's either this or give up my soul. I have to do this. I don't know why I have to do this, but I have to do it. Please, you know, forgive me. God Mm. forgive me. I have to do this. Mm. And my dad was just sitting there and he just started crying and he just said, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved. Yeah. Yeah, And the shock of that to Mm -hmm. be like for my own dad to say, choose life, Mm. choose living, Uh, It doesn't matter whose expectations you are shattering, like choose the expansiveness of your soul. Um, He said to me later that he felt like I had been hiding behind a heavy cloak for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And that in that moment, he got a glimmer of me again and he was like, there you are, there you are. I see you again. (laughs) Uh So yeah, it was a gate. It was devastating and it was so painful because I cared so much for him, my ex-husband and because this wasn't wrapped in an you know, easy target of hate or anger of like, oh, you cheated or this person did that. It was just right. it was just the end. Hmm. Um and learning how to navigate that with compassion and find a way to do it so that like our kids could still have an easy transition took a lot of conscious choice hmm. and we have the kind of relationship and friendship that we have now, which is a very collaborative co-parenting relationship because of millions of little choices that we made along the way and to hard choose ones. <laughs> hard ones to choose yeah. the more again and again, to be like, okay, this sucks. And let's choose the more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for <clears throat> opening up. Um, man, I'm just really touched by the things that you're saying and um and that that image of the tree is is dark and kind of synchronistically wonderful. And I th- I think many people know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. sometimes you don't even see that that it's rotten until it falls over, you know. That's right. Until it reveals itself. Yeah. Um mm. I wanted to um ask you just a little bit about the mentors in your life and the like kind of the spiritual paths that you've been following. And, and what do I mean by mentors? I guess, I mean it straight from, from the word, <laughs> from the odyssey where mentor the character comes down to the beach and tells Telemachus, you got to You got to leave. And I'm going to go with you for a while. That's basically the essence of it. You got to leave the Island. Otherwise you're going to grow bitter and, you know, suicidal and, let's go. So, um, what, what kind of like unforeseen and, and that's the, that's part of the archetype of the mentor. It's not like you look them up on the internet necessarily that you sort of bump (laughs) into them. You know, it's not like, who can I choose as my mentors? Like choosing a coach or something. They're not coaches. So what, what would you say? Who are the mentors that have come into your life that, um, have, have helped you grow in the way we've been using that word
1: it's funny, the way you framed like, who can I choose as my mentor? It's like the same thing of like, what should I do for my career? It's like, in the effort to try to like name the thing, it's like we miss we miss the thing itself and like mm-hmm. don't see who's right in front of us. So, yeah, yeah, I think going back to to the beginning, I think you and Mandy played and still play a huge role as mentors in my life as companions of the journey. Uh, you haven't left me yet, you two. So <laughs> I guess I guess that's a good thing. But I remember, you know, the companionship of even just reading material or being exposed to teachings and discussing it or going through heartbreak and loss or confusion and discussing it. So that's a particular kind of mentorship or the, those who are like your your Anamkara people, like your soul people. Soul people, yeah. That mm-hmm. just you're walking along life and you can, you know, get get busy and lose touch and reconnect a few months later. And then it's like, oh, you're reading that me too, or like, oh my gosh, you're doing this. Like, tell me more. And you're inspired. Mm-hmm. You're inspired by each other. You animate each other to keep going. But I think I've had um, an embarrassment of riches in terms of, of mentors, uh, both artistically and spiritually. And um, I think I'll focus on on the spiritual ones just because I think, yeah, yeah, you okay. know, Rob Bell was a mentor early on and the things that he was exploring and thinking and really influenced me and opened me up to a whole lot. But really, Richard, Richard Rohr became a mentor even before I ever met him because of the the um, work that I was reading, you know, that all his books that were giving me language for an experience. I didn't know how to describe, you know, giving language to the mystical experience, or even just introducing me to the mystics. Um, And through Richard Rohr and kind of my work at the CAC being exposed to people like Cynthia Bourgeau, who was also a mentor who Really invested a lot in me and who I really learned a lot from. And she had a unique, kind of quirky, quirky as fuck blend of, you know, an that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Episcopalian, you know, uh, priest mixed with like Gurdjieff Fourth Way teachings, mixed with just her own mystical brand of, you know, amazing creative uh, explorations. And but I think what really drew me to her work was her brilliance, her ability to articulate ideas in such a brilliant way, in such a profoundly precise way. And then other mentors, um, you know, that that were part of that CAC world, the Center for Action and Contemplation world, like James Finley and um, you know Brian McLaren, who's now a part of that world, but we knew from back in the Marcel yeah, days. back in the old days. Yeah. Yeah. So he was kind of an ever present voice. Mm. So these are a lot of the spiritual, you know, mentors, but I want to say something about all of them, which is that with each of them, I had to get really disappointed. (laughs) I had to, I had to like sort of be remembered to their humanity and Mm. with each of them to go through the process of discovering their humanity and to feel the disappointment was to birth my own capacity and to believe in my own ability
0: yeah, you know that's in in Zen Buddhism. Yeah, it's called slapping the master. I was just going to say yeah, that. Yeah, that,
1: that James Finley teaches about that. He's like, you got to slap the master at some point. So,
0: and everybody listens to that and says, yeah, that's right, but not him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We can't slap him. He's so precious. But yeah, no, I think one one after the other in different ways, there have there has been that moment, mm-hmm. and not and not without great pain. I'm not saying like it felt good or, and it's not to say that I thought I was, I, I don't feel worthy or like somehow superior in any way to these great teachers, but I had to get to a place where I remembered my own agency, yeah. my own ability to explore and express these things in my own voice, not in their voice, mm-hmm. in my own voice.
0: Yeah. That's no easy task. I mean, I feel like I'm 45 now and I'm having to face this question again. I, I've, I've been working on a book and as you know, like I'm full of quotations all the time. Like I just gave you one, like slapping the master, for example. And, um, I'm, I have some natural ability to, to to see patterns and to connect this with that. And so-and-so said this, and it's like this map and it's kind of like this, and it's like this piece of artwork and I can get lost in that kind of labyrinth. Um, and I, I was, I was 80,000 words into a book recently. And I, it's like, I, it's like a force stopped me. Mm. And there's this line in the new Testament. It says that um, the spirit of Jesus stopped Paul from going to Macedonia. Mm. <laughs> I, that always makes me laugh. And uh, it was like that. And, <laughs> and something else was like, all right, once again, you're going to have to say, if you're going to say anything at all, it's, it's got to come from a deeper place and, and that's like, God, it's like,
1: it's not easy, but see, this is where I feel like, you know, the reason I wanted to name all those spiritual teachers is to say as great as they were, they're not the primary mentors. Mm. You know, I think the artists always will be the poets, the artists, Picasso, Matisse, you know, um, motherhood, (laughs) fucking motherhood. Uh, But yeah, like the, The full stop that many of us have had and experienced in the last two years because of the pandemic is a little bit of that Jesus, you know, saying to Paul, like, Nope.
0: Yeah. It's a total
1: forced stop of Mm -hmm. all of our plans, of everything that we have identified with, all of the things that we anticipated, that we thought we were going to achieve, accomplish, or do. Yeah. And during that great pause, the voices that came to me were the poets. It was it was Rilke. It was Neruda. It was Mary Oliver. It was, and it was the artists. It was it was Matisse and Picasso, and uh, it was the fury of creativity. It was the the rediscovery of that primary and primal capacity of being a creator mm-hmm. that allowed me to have grace for the slapping the master moments and be like oh it's okay cuz nothing is ever lost or wasted in this life. Hmm. So it's not like it's not like I lost anything. In fact, I I just it's just more of more. It's like loaves and fishes more. Yeah. It's like all of their teaching got woven in with the influence of artists and hmm. put in a blender of my life <laughs> put on high. made a big fucking mess but you know here we are it's like it's become something new it's alchemy it has been it has been sublimated it has been transmuted into something that is mine or uniquely in my voice god
0: yeah yeah um mm. i don't want to end our conversation um it's also it's fun because we haven't talked in a while like just I, know. I know it's been like a few weeks or a few months really since we've had a really deep conversation so it's like it what we're doing now is what we'd be doing anyway if we totally. were if we were talking <laughs> so, it's like let's do a podcast what should we plan so, it no let's we, not plan. we
1: probably wouldn't go so far into the past we probably yeah just, that's right
0: it we could talk your, a whole, although
1: i learned a whole hour a lot. just on the yeah. last six months <laughs> yeah, exactly right. i did learn
0: some things about the early years about the early albums that i'm <laughs> grateful for you know, yeah. Um, but why don't you, I'd love to just hear, hear a few things about what's going on right this second and what kinds of things are you offering in the world that, um, some of us might be interested in and, mm. um, you know, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, I think during the pandemic was when I started becoming remembered to my own music and I, I, I wrote a lot a lot of songs during that time and a lot of songs about just longing and just sort of feeling into my own contours as a woman. Now that my kids are a bit older, it's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm a woman. I'm not just a mom. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm a lover too. forgot about that. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, so the, you know, the return to music as, as one of my primary languages, I felt really good. And I started writing all these songs in English and in Spanish and in French. I have no business speaking French, but I think because of my love- More than I do. Yeah, my my love (laughs) of a lot of artists there. And because we spent some time in France when I was a little girl, we used to travel there in the wintertime. And so it's like, it's it's nostalgic. And there's a thing about languages and it's true about terrains too. Like some flowers only bloom in certain places and languages like that. Certain things can be said in one language that- just can't quite be said in another so I think to have written an entire album in this blend of three languages was a deep homecoming for me Mm -hmm. and to write so freely and openly about you know my sexuality my spirituality and all of it kind of harmonizing at the same time without needing to justify anything with depth yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> or
1: meaning it's like, no, this is a song about missing my lover. Like, yeah, it's just <sighs> yeah, but about sex. What does sex. it really
0: mean? <laughs> it's <Yeah>.
1: about sex, <laughs> <laughs> but that was so liberating. It was so freeing to finally be in a place where I felt comfortable saying all of it mm-hmm. and saying it all in all those different languages, the, all the different languages of me. So I started making music And, um, during the pandemic, part of what happened is the the organization I was working for the dissolved suddenly. So I was, I was in a quite intense four stop of what the fuck do I do now? Mm. So I, you know, was just embraced the unknowing. Uh, Luckily I had a savings account that bought me time, but I just focused on music and I started painting again, which I hadn't done in a long time and slowly, but surely conceived of the podcast that we've spoken about called unknowing. So this past year has has been the largest, most costly, most terrifying leap of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, coming up in February, it'll be one year that I'm officially unemployed and and not. Congratulations! Thank you, (laughs) (laughs) and not belonging to the you know to the realm of like having a paycheck, Mm -hmm. the security of the paycheck. And there are many nights that you know I'm terrified. And my mom could probably tell you the many, many nights that I call her at three in the morning being like, what the fuck am I doing?
0: She answers the phone.
1: She does. Cause she's always wow. up in the middle of the yeah. night. I know <laughs> I, we need to do our own podcast. I need to do a podcast just with Wendy. It would be pretty funny. That would be but, great. um, you know, she could probably also tell you that my voice has never sounded clear mm. that my eyes haven't sparkled this much, maybe ever, that I haven't laughed as much as I'm laughing. And I have never ever felt more alive ever. And so I trust it, even though you know, there's risks involved, and I'm becoming more used to the fact that I'm always perpetually two months away from being dead broke.
0: Yeah. But, well, we're, uh, we're, we're all two months away from being dead anyway. so
1: <laughs> But I think this time really inspired me to discover or um, weave the experience of being an artist and a creative with the spiritual growth and transformation. And so uh, this winter, I launched what I hope will become a year long journey of looking at the seasons as invitations to, to see your creativity as orbiting a creative cycle, Mm. and to kind of become remembered with a more cyclical understanding of life force and and eros and energy. Um, Because we have this like, panic that takes over every time we go through a winter, whether it's literal or figurative, it's like, wait, I'm not creating, I'm not producing. I don't know what I should do. It's like, oh, that's you're in womb time. It's okay. Yeah. So I launched a winter scene. course. Yeah. I, I launched a, a course, a six week course this winter called womb in the spring, there will be one called woo In the summer there will be one called bloom. And then in the fall, there will be a Ween. and oh, I love it. Yeah. It's, it's nice because as I'm really, I'm writing it for myself. Mm -hmm. Like it's the spiritual path that like is not precious oriented toward creativity, but it's weaving in everything that I've been exposed to and have learned along the way. So it's Mm -hmm. quite meaningful.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Well um, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for being you. And I think displaying the kind of courage that, you hope to inspire in in other people, you know, I mean, I can feel it even as we're speaking. So, um, yeah, thank, thanks for coming on. And, um, and I hope people, uh, I hope it gets under their skin a little bit, this podcast Mm -hmm. in in the right kind of way. And, and, um, and they know how to find you online. Do you have a website?
1: I do. It's yeah. breestoner.com but I mean, come on, social yeah. media, yeah, whatever. I know. I know. But Kent, thank you for having me on. And I just want to say that, you know, the, the animating force that you and Mandy have, have offered me in my journey has woven whatever it is that you see of courage and of beauty and of possibility now. And so we share that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I, I, have been inspired by your journey again and again, you know, your willingness to color outside the lines, your willingness to walk away. So thank you for also <laughs> showing, showing it, showing me the way, you know, on this, like in the wilds beyond the fences, you know?
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. All right. Cool. I'm hit pause.